The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the fourth chapter. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things we, that we already have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard all this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you all to be seated. There, there are some things that we hear our whole life, and I think it, it does us good to hear them with some fresh ears. And Second uh, Corinthians, or the, that's why I said it, said it wrong the last, last time, because I saw second lessons. It's really First Corinthians, or, or one Corinthian, depending on what you like. But first, this chat, reading from First Corinthians is one that we hear a lot, and I'd like you to listen to it a little bit with, with some new ears and see if you hear anything a little bit different in it. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies... They will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put an end to my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face... Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. When uh, when we hear this this gospel, or this text most of the time, I think when we hear it is at weddings... And I remember we actually had this read at our wedding, and my uncle sang a version of it, and 
then, you know, I got to seminary and I had a professor tell me, oh, well, you're not supposed to use it during weddings because it's really not about that kind of love. Oh, okay, we're all wrong. And what it's really about is the love of God. It's about that love that, that we aspire to, but we never quite reach. The love that can bear all things and hope all things and believe all things and endure all things. That love that does not end. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that I don't possess that kind of love. And this may shock you, but sometimes I tend to be a little bit impatient. And if you ever see me in traffic, you'll understand exactly what I mean. You know, sometimes traffic will cause me to forget my religion. Or, or standing in line at the grocery store and the people are counting out the change one penny at a time. And I remind myself, Jesus loves these people. Love, love is, is a wonderful thing and it's a difficult thing because love does something that we all think we want but figure out really quickly that we're not as interested in as we thought we were. Love tells us the truth. Now, I like to be honest and I, I'm generally in favor of honesty but a lot of times when we hear the truth about who we are we hear a truth that we're really not prepared to hear. You know, I've... I always thought before I got married that I was a pretty reasonable guy. And then I heard the truth interpreted to me by, by my wife, who was very honest. And I learned really quickly that I'm not as patient, I'm not as kind, I'm not as loving. I don't remember things the way I, you know. We all have the list that our spouse of either gender is able to give us that tell us the truth that we are not really interested in hearing, even though we think what we want is people to be honest with us. Now, and what we have in the gospel text today is Jesus being honest with people. You know, he, he was batting for his hometown crowd, and he had them right where he was hoping to be during the whole sermon, probably. And in fact, we hear at the end of his time in the temple in Nazareth, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, comfort to the oppressed, release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. And today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And there was much rejoicing in the synagogue that day because they heard their hometown person who had been off doing signs and wonders and Capernaum and all over the place. And they were thinking, finally, Jesus has come home. And Jesus thinks he knows what the crowd there was thinking, that he'd been doing all those good things far and wide and off over there for all those people that they don't know and therefore don't really matter. Certainly when he comes home, he's going to do things for us that are going to rival everything that he did in Capernaum, right? And the first words out of Jesus' mouth after they get done congratulating him and themselves on what a good job they did raising him was say, I'm sure you're going to quote to me the proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And I, I want to remind you that during the time of Elijah, when, you know, the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a famine across the land, that the prophet didn't bring any relief except to a widow who was from off over there somewhere in Sidon. And during the time of Elisha, when leprosy and disease was all over the place, there was not a single person who was healed except for Naaman, the Syrian general, who had plenty of wealth and other things, but there received the healing that God provided through the prophet. But not a single person at home was healed. And all of a sudden, everyone started to get angry with Jesus. And this, this always sounded so strange to me, that people would get so angry with Jesus for saying, 
well, remember when, the, when those people over there were healed and none of, the, none of the people in Israel were healed? And remember when those people over there were fed, but none of the people in Israel were fed? And then, then I began to realize what was really going on is they weren't looking for the Messiah that God was sending according to God's plan. They were looking for the Messiah that they wanted. They were looking for the Messiah who was going to fulfill their agenda. They were looking for the one that God would send to give them the things that they were hoping for rather than looking for the Messiah who was fulfilling the agenda that God had. I, and I know that that doesn't happen in, in this congregation, but there are some Baptist churches down the road where occasionally people are like that. You know, and as we, as we think about what that's like to have these expectations of God that sometimes go unfulfilled, you know, we, we have a great example is we're coming off of a funeral of a young person and at 39 years old, which is not as old as it sounds, I'd, I recognize how young 40 really is. You know, it, it used to be that I'd hear someone was 40 and I'd think they were already halfway over the hill. But at 39, I still most days feel pretty good. And I realize that it, it ain't long enough. You know, we, we are people who, who come together in the midst of, of our sadness and our brokenness and ask God important questions like, Why? Why is a faithful question? Why is the question that sometimes resounds in our hearts? You know, why is it that we lose good people young while some of those people who are out there doing dangerous, stupid things seem to be impervious to any harm? You know, why is it that we live in a world where, where we have the means to feed everybody who's hungry, where we have probably enough empty houses in this nation to house everyone who's homeless, and yet there are people who are starving and people who live on the streets? Why? You know, why is it that, that bad things happen to good people? Why is it that God lets these things happen? And I've, I have this image in my head of, of God and someone like me who asks God's, God a lot of hard questions because God and I have a lot of big discussions. You know, he, don't worry, I don't hear him talking back all that often, not those kinds of discussions. But, you know, this image of, of standing, looking over all the things that are in the world and you know, seeing the, the people who are hungry and seeing the people who are homeless and seeing the people who are suffering and seeing the places where there's civil war and unrest and seeing the places where people don't know how to get along and seeing all these things in the world that make us so frustrated and angry and scared and saying, this is what you made, God. And God looking back and showing us our love of wealth and showing us our selfishness and showing us our houses and our bank accounts and showing us all those things that we use to insulate us from the world around us so that we can live into the illusion that what we have is enough to protect us and pointing back and saying, this is what you made God. Do we worship the God that we want to accomplish our agenda or do we worship the God who brings his own agenda? Honesty's hard. And when we hear the truth about, our, about ourselves and the truth about our culture, it's hard. All of a sudden, it's not so difficult to understand why the people in Jesus' hometown wanted to throw them off a cliff because Jesus was telling them the truth that they didn't want to hear. And going back to that, that 1 Corinthians passage, I, I think about all these things that love is, and, and I recognize all those things that love is that I'm not. 
And, and I think about those things that I say that afterwards I realize I really didn't mean that hurt people. And then I think about the things that I said that I really did mean that hurt people. You know, I, I think about that narrative that goes through my head reminding me of all the things that I've ever done that, that I'm embarrassed by or that, that, have, that have destroyed relationships. And I've had a few, you know, or, or ways in which that I was hoping that I would be faithful or mature and haven't been. And I wonder... How is it that, that God could love me? How could anybody love me if they really saw my heart? How, how is there a love that could, embear, that could bear and endure and hope for and, and never end for me when, when I know what I'm like and I know what the world's like and half the time I feel like I'm not acting very lovable? And that's when I'm very grateful that that passage isn't about the love that I'm called to have, but it's about the love that God gives through the waters of baptism. It's about the love that God gives us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, where in those moments in our lives where we realize that we are hurt and powerless and broken and scared and embarrassed and ashamed, where we feel like our hearts are fallow ground that could never bear anything again, as if our whole soul is salted earth. It's there where God plants the cross and declares that this is where new life begins. In the midst of your death, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your pain, the death and resurrection of Jesus are the way that I establish the new kingdom. In those places where you are powerless, I am strong. And as we think about what the, what the church is like today, you know, it's funny because I think every generation does this. You know, we, if you look on the internet and you look up, you know, the death of the church or Christianity, what shape is it in, or I don't know, Google any Pew study, you see all the bad news that church attendance is down and the church is dying and this is going on and we're all so scared, none of us know what to do. You know what they were doing in the sainted 50s when, when everything was supposed to be perfect for us? Church attendance is down and nobody goes to church and nobody cares about Jesus and we don't know what we're going to do. You know what they were doing in 1900? Church attendance is down and people aren't going to church and we don't know what to do. You know, 1517, Martin Luther says, you know, people aren't taking the church seriously and the Pope is a hypocrite and they're selling tickets to heaven. You know, what are we going to... It started, all of it started even, even before that. You know, you think about what Jesus was doing with the disciples and we see the image of the disciples running to Jesus after they were unable to cast out demons. And they say to Jesus, teacher, that man over there is casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. You know, go make him stop. Or even as God was giving the Ten Commandments, the people of God who had just been led out of slavery by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, who were now receiving the law from the God who loves them enough to bring them into freedom, even though they'd complained the whole way, said to themselves, we're out of slavery, we're free, it's time to party, and they began to melt down their jewelry so that they could worship a fertility god. You know, people have not changed, and the worries of people haven't changed. We're, we're essentially the same now as we ever have been. If you go all the way back to the garden, what happens when God sees Adam and Eve walking through the garden, and, and then they all of a sudden hide from God, and God says, Adam, why are you hiding? He says, because I'm naked. Well, who told you that? Eve made me do it. We are no different than we ever were. 
And thank God that God hasn't changed either. The same God who gave love to his disobedient children, Adam and Eve, is the same God who continues to call us and claim us and restore us and renew us through the waters of baptism, who continues to nourish us with the meal of communion, who continues to give us a space together where we can be family in the church, even when sometimes we really do act like family. I remember the first time I was ever on a church council. The first year I was on church council, we redid the sanctuary. The second year, we started a building program. So as you might imagine, easy time, right? And I remember the saints of God who had taught me Sunday school arguing about what color yellow we were going to paint the sanctuary, arguing for what felt like three hours over two colors that I literally could not tell the difference between. You know, things don't change, and everywhere you go, people are the same. For us, who are called to be the people of God through the waters of baptism, called and gathered and sent out into a world that is broken and thirsting to hear the good news that God calls it good too. How is it that we are going to share that light and love and grace with the people in the world who need to hear it so desperately and so clearly, who haven't found the the joy that we find in our communion and in our company? I think maybe the most important thing we can take out into the world comes from toward the end of that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. Paul is talking about, you know, now, now we prophesy in part, but then we'll have all knowledge. Now we speak in part. Now we see in part. Now I see in a mir- mirror dimly, but then I will be seen, and but then I will see fully, and then I will know fully, even as if I as I have been fully known. You know, the other thing that my wife, who's very honest, tells me that that I find to be very comforting is when we have the big fights. You know, the big fights, the ones where you wonder. You know, is, is the marriage going to survive? Am I going to live through this? You know, is, is there anything that's ever going to be right again? She'll look at me and say to me, you know, Eric, I know you. And I know who you are. And I'm angry right now, but I love you. How amazing it feels to be known in that way. The way that God knows us and sees us our good spots and our bad spots, and loves us. How do we bear that into the world so that the world can see the gift of love that God has in store, the gift of love that God has for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the love that death can't stop, and the love that we couldn't break? How can we take that for the world to see? Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, o Lord. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. 
But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow in Zarephath and Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up and drove him out of the town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl Jesus off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Y'all can be seated. I find... As I get a little bit older, and for those of you in high school, I'm 39, but that is not yet old. Trust me, it sounds old, but it's not yet. I, I do find, though, that from time to time when I hear things in a different way, I hear them a little differently. And one of the, one of the texts that I think we hear a lot throughout our lives is this text from 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, or 2 Corinthians, depending on how you prefer to say it. Um, and, and I'd like you all to hear this and, and listen with, with some new ears what, what Paul says to, to a place that's known for its conflict. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. One of the uh, lies I used to tell myself was that I really like the truth. Um, and I, I do. Generally, I'm in favor of being honest. But the lie that I like to tell myself is that I really like people to be honest with me about me. I, I learned shortly after I got married to a very honest woman that I wasn't entirely convinced anymore that this is the case. Because if you really want to make somebody angry at you, you tell them the truth about how they make you feel, about how their actions affect you, you know, and i I'm a generally reasonable person. I'm, I'm pretty easy to get along with. But it's amazing how quickly I, become, I begin to feel unreasonable when my wife really tells me the truth. Now, I, I say this with love, 
because we are very happy, and she still is very honest. But I've, I've come to realize over the, what is it, 15 years we'll be married in March, that sometimes I'm just not as comfortable with honesty as what I think I am. And I remember my, my, uh, my uncle sang a version of this song, of this uh, Second Corinthians pas- passage at my wedding, and we had it read at my wedding because I was thinking, oh, you know, love, 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 this is a great thing for a wedding. And, you know, then I went to seminary and the professors dashed everything I knew about this text, telling me, well, this isn't really a, a text about romantic love. This is a text about the love that God has for us. And, you know, you shouldn't use it at weddings and those things that people like to say that make us all feel like we're not as smart as we think we are, you know, so that we can use things properly. But I, I have to say that even though this isn't a wedding text, and even though this isn't a text about romantic love, and it is a text about God's love, it, it's also a text that talks to us about what it is to aspire to love like God loves, what it is to aspire to love with a love that does not die, with a love that bears all things and hopes all things and endures all things and does not end. It's a love, if I'm telling the truth about myself, that I don't have. Because this will surprise you, but sometimes I'm not the most patient person in the world. If there had been people on the road with me when I was driving here this morning, I may have proved that occasionally. And oftentimes in traffic driving back from Columbia, I do prove that. You know, or standing in line at the checkout line, and the person in the line in front of me is picking out those last three pennies to give to the cashier because it's very important that they give correct change. You know, I recognize right then just how limited my love and my patience and my kindness really are. And I recognize how far I have to go to aspire to the love of God. But even recognizing this, you know, we we realize that this love that we're called to as people of God is a love that we never really arrive at. It's a love we're always aspiring to. I I remember as a youth when I was on the church council, because that's, apparently I behaved very badly in Sunday school, and this is how they wanted to punish me, by making me the youth member on council. Although I I was always the odd bird that enjoyed being there, because I like to see how how the sausage is made. I like to really understand how the church works. I like to understand what's going on in this congregation. And I was really excited, because I'd been a charter member of my home congregation. And I was excited because I was going to be on council with the people who taught me in Sunday school. I was going to be on council with my pastor who I respected. I was going to be on council with with all these people who I had known all my life. And the first year that I was on council, we decided to redo the sanctuary. Now, I'm I'm positive at St. Luke's this doesn't happen. But at my home congregation when I was on council... We had three-hour council meetings almost the entire time I was there, talking about what color we should paint the walls, what color we should have the carpet. And one meeting, I remember two sainted women of God who taught me Sunday school and taught me the creeds and all these things they promised to do at baptism. And they argued, I swear it was two hours if it was a minute, about what color yellow we should put on the walls, two colors that I literally could not tell the difference between. You know, and... All of a sudden, I wondered how much I really wanted to know how the sausage was made at church, right? And then the second year I was on council, we started a capital campaign. So I must have, I must have really either made my pastor happy with me when he asked me to run for council as the youth person, or else he was really upset with me when he asked me to do this. One of the two was true, I'm sure. And 
I do remember both feeling like we, uh, like they did listen to me from time to time, but I also remember that as enthusiastic as I was and as excited as I was about the things that we were doing, I felt like a lot of times my voice was muted because I was the young person in the room. Now, granted, and, and I know y'all don't do this, but I thought I knew everything when I was 17, 18 years old. And, you know, so probably my opinions were much more elevated in my own mind than they were actually as opinions. But I remember real clearly what it was like to feel like people weren't listening to me, to feel like I had enthusiasm for something, but people weren't interested in hearing it, to, to feel like I had some, and I did have some ideas for some things that we could do that people weren't just, just weren't willing to hear. It's one of the reasons why I enjoyed LCY so much is because we got a chance to really determine what our ministry looked like. And I remember thinking to myself, well, once I'm an adult, everyone's going to listen to me, right? Once I'm an adult, then, then everyone's going to respect my opinion and, and respect me the way they respected it. Well, hopefully not the way they were respecting each other while I was on council because they were frustrated with each other most of the time. But I was positive that this wasn't the norm. This was a blip in the system because these are grown-up people who believe in Jesus and grown-up people who believe in Jesus always get along, right? And then I was on council again when I was in college and I realized, okay, so maybe that's not the case. Maybe I won't be listened to anymore when I'm an adult than I was when I was a youth. And maybe these people of God don't always get along. And I remember struggling with, you know, what is it that, that we're really about in the church if we, if we act a lot of times like we don't even like each other? It took me a few years to figure it out. That, and, and really, it took marriage to help me really figure it out. That there's no one who can make you happier than the person you love there's no one who can make you angrier than the person you love. And just because you fuss and just because you fight and just because occasionally, and not at my house, but in other homes, you storm out of the room because you just don't know what to say anymore, you know, doesn't mean that that love isn't real, isn't true, isn't deep, isn't abiding, and isn't healthy. Because one of the things that I've learned is that it's during those times where you choose not to fight and choose peace over conflict that you really have the most problem in relationship because then resentment builds up. So the, the good news for y'all is eventually people will treat you just the same as everyone else. The bad news for y'all is that means that sometimes you'll feel like they don't listen to you any better than they do now. The, the good news is that, uh, you know, the relationships allow you to, to figure out how to be real with people. The bad news is that sometimes people really are real with you, and it can both be a good thing and a bad thing. And, you know, I don't, I think one of the things that, that makes this such a poignant lesson for me is every, every year we go through one of the Gospels. We go through and we hear the story of Jesus. We go through and hear about how God loves the world so much that God became part of it, that God took on flesh and became one of us so that he could stake his claim with us, so that God could stand in solidarity with humanity and declare to us, that undying, never-ending love in person, saying that I love you so much, I want to share your experience. And you would expect this to go so well. And in Luke chapter 4, in the beginning, the verse we had last week, we hear it going so well. Jesus stands up and reads from the scroll of Isaiah in his hometown church. 
And he reads today the scripture, and he reads, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, release to the captive, comfort to the afflicted, you know, recovery of sight to the blind, and then declares to them today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all those hometown people applauded Jesus, and I think in part because they were proud of seeing this person they'd seen as a child, now as an adult, and we're always proud of those people who we've seen grown up and in part because they know who Jesus has grown up to be. And they were hoping exactly what Jesus was saying no to today in the scripture, that Jesus was going to do some of those things in his hometown that he did in Capernaum. And then all of a sudden the tide shifts because the people recognize that Jesus didn't come to appease them. Jesus came to do the work that God had given him to do. And he said... I know you're going to quote to me the the scripture that says, Doctor, cure yourself. And probably you're going to expect to see me do deeds of power like like I did at Capernaum. But remember Isaiah, the heavens were wrapped up for three years and six months and there was a famine across the land. And none of God's chosen people were saved, but some of those outsiders were saved, the people from off, you know, and... Remember, there was a, an epidemic of leprosy, and not a single person was, cleared, was cleansed except for a Syrian named Naaman, someone who was in a conquering army. And all of a sudden, the people got angry because they were expecting Jesus to do what they wanted him to do. They were expecting God to capitulate to what they wanted God to do. They were looking for the Messiah that they wanted not the Messiah that God was sending. And they learned a hard truth that God's presence is always with us, but that doesn't always mean that we get what we want. God's presence is always with us, and God hears our prayers, but sometimes the prayers for, answered for us are no, and the, and the prayers answered for someone else are yes. And how do we deal with the hard fact that the world is broken and sinful and that bad things happen to good people. And it remains that way, even when we're good people and we follow Jesus. And then we look over there and we see people who we deem as not worthy receiving the gifts that we think we should be receiving. You know, when you think about it like that and realize what it was that Jesus was really saying to them, that I'm not here to give you what you want, it's no wonder that they tried to drive Jesus off a cliff. Because Jesus told them the very thing that they they didn't want to hear. Jesus told them the truth. The problem with the truth is that it's so honest. And it disarms you. And it takes away our defenses. And it helps us to recognize some truths about ourselves that we don't want to realize. That we really aren't as powerful as we think we are. We're really not as smart as we think we are. We're really not... As, as competent as we think we are, and that even though we have a good thing going here, God also loves those people over there that we try to keep out. And sometimes that makes us mighty angry because we really don't want whoever those people are, whether they're Baptists or Syrians or whatever they are, we don't want them here because we're afraid they might change what we have here. And the truth is that the kingdom of God is a kingdom that kicks down the doors It doesn't operate by our values, our standards, but it operates by the values of God and the standards of God. 
And sometimes it causes us to have to stretch ourselves and stretch our imaginations and stretch our hearts to include people that we would prefer not to include. And that truth hurts. And that truth is uncomfortable. And that truth is frustrating. Because when we realize that it's not about us, all of a sudden we realize the fact that no matter how smart, how competent, how good at things I am, no matter how much power I may have accrued, no matter how many good things I've done, that's not what makes me worthy of the love of God because the love of God isn't something that I earn with the things I do, the things I think, and the things I say. And sometimes my my answer for that is, thank God. Sometimes my answer for that is, that's just not fair. And in those moments in my life where all of a sudden the gospel that I hear God proclaiming, that God loves the world and has a plan for the world, not just my little corner of it, and it frustrates me and it makes me angry because my plans are pretty good. I remember these words from 2 Corinthians, that love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful. Love endures all things and bears all things and hopes all things, even in the midst of my selfishness, even in the midst of my ego, even when I think I know better than God. Thank God that that love and that mercy and that welcome and that grace and the wholeness that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that overcomes all things in me to proclaim the gospel to my hard heart is true and not the things that I think should be true. At the end of the day, you know, I do want some good things. But if I got everything that I wanted, I'd be fat or you know, I'd, I'd have a much shorter lifespan than I hope to have. And I probably would be divorced. Because isn't that what, what life is really like when we try to get everything we want? The gospel tells us the hard truth that it's really not about us. That it's about who we are together. Whether we're getting along or whether we're fighting. Whether we're agreeing or whether we're disagreeing. Whether that person over there says the same things that we think they should say or does the things that please us or whether they don't. The good news for us is that through the waters of baptism, we hold our identity as unchanging in the eyes of God, that we all are beloved, we all are claimed, we all are called, we all are formed and reformed and renewed and restored and refreshed, And thank God that our identity as the church does not rest in whether we agree with each other or whether we get along, but that it rests in baptism. Because that means that that thing that draws us all together and holds us all together and holds us fast is big enough and strong enough to bear me up at my worst. And... If I'm like any of the rest of y'all, some of my worst can get pretty bad. And thank God that God is big enough to handle that. As we go out from this place today and we enter into the world where so many things are beyond our control and so many things confuse us and so many things make us angry, you know, think about how is it 
that you can model that love that does not, that does not end? How can you model that love that bears all things and hopes all things and believes all things? That love that takes what is broken and, and becomes fixed? That thing that takes what is sad and, and grieving and brings it wholeness and healing? How is it that in your thoughts, words, and deeds, and the ways that you deal with people in large ways or small, and the ways that you deal with yourself, are going to show the grace of the love that we are called to live in. The love that, thank God, we really can't avoid because it's a love that stretches down to the core of our being, into our brokenness, and into our egos, and into those places where we're absolutely convinced that we are right and there is no other way, and declares that God's new life begins there because what God does is take broken things and dead things, and things that we think can never live again, and bring them new life. How can we bear that love into a world that needs so desperately to hear it? Amen.